Hello, everyone. I am excited to get into this last episode of the four-part series that I've been doing on Viola Davis's memoir, Finding Me. Uh, in the first three episodes, as I mentioned, the, uh, the content was relatively heavy. The first episode, I talked about various environments, including poverty and um, economic disadvantages that kind of contributed to Viola's upbringing. Uh, in the second episode, I talked about the many instances of racism. And in the last episode, we discussed the traumas, the um, adversities, um, mental health challenges, and things like that. So as promised in the last episode, this final episode is titled Hope. So um, given the heavy content of this particular book series, I wanted to just highlight a few parts of the book that were very hopeful, um, obviously, to, to end the series on a high note. So to jump in, uh, I believe it was in the first episode, I talked about how uh, Viola and her siblings often had to go to school um, with like unwashed clothes due to the poverty that they lived in, um, the pipes often getting frozen or the utilities getting shut off due to non-payment and stuff like that. Um, and there was one example that really stood out to me where basically the teacher that Viola looked up to kind of turned her nose up at her due to um, hygiene issues and even went as far as sending her and her sister to the principal's office uh, to get a lecture about hygiene. Um, and so I wanted to share a little bit about the principal of the school because the the principal was somebody that really looked out for Viola and her family. Um, and so I'm going to jump into that now. Quote, Mrs. Prosser would call me to her office, and whenever she did, I would think, oh my God, what did I do? Because I really was a troublemaker. Even when I hadn't done anything wrong, I would wait for the shoe to drop. But often she would call me to her office and shower me with bags of hand-me-downs that belonged to her daughter really cute clothes and little purses. I would wear them to school and just stand in the schoolyard during recess and pose in the clothes she had gifted me, as if to say, look at me. It was like I was demanding or begging for attention, positive attention, not wanting anyone to touch my perfectly put together outfit. Mrs. Prosser knew our situation. When she saw us, she yelled from the window, Mrs. Davis, Mrs. Davis, my mama stopped. We were huddled together, shivering, when the principal ran out. She was so desperate to get to us that Mrs. Prosser didn't even have a coat on. Mrs. Davis, your kids aren't in school. What's going on? We don't have no heat, no electricity. We ain't got nothing. And the pipes froze. There's no running water. They can't even wash up. We can't do nothing. Oh, Mrs. Davis, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Tears welled in her eyes as she looked at us and touched my face. I'm so sorry. I wish there was something we could do. We're going downtown Pawtucket to see if we can get someone to help us pay the bills. Okay, well, just let us know if there's anything we can do. I'm so sorry. I just wanted to know why your kids weren't in school. That period of my life was filled with shame. 
the feeling you get in the pit of your stomach when you have stage fright or humiliation. That was the shame of 128. 128 is the address of the house that she lived in, by the way. Um, Shame completely eviscerates you, destroys any sense of pride you may have in yourself. One day in class, I had to use the bathroom real bad, and I just kept my hand raised, but the teacher never acknowledged me. I couldn't hold it anymore, so I peed in my seat. It dripped on the floor and flooded my seat. My teacher got me a dry pair of pants from the nurse's office, put my wet clothes in a paper bag, and sent me home. But the most humiliating part of this was coming back the next day to find my desk in a back corner of the classroom with the same big puddle of urine still in my seat. It stayed there until it slowly dried up. What? My six-year-old piss was too disgusting for even the janitor to clean? End quote. So I started out with the hopeful, right? We have the, the principal who's really looking out for Viola. And in my highlight, I realized that there was another very sad moment because while the principal was looking out for the family, the teachers kind of turned their back on her due to her poverty and the perceived inconvenience. So those two are juxtaposition because it shows like on one hand, someone's really looking out for them and trying to instill a sense of hope, whereas other people Uh, are just treating her as if she is an inconvenience. So um, I want to hop into the next note that I took, um, mainly because it nods to another person who I've done a series on this podcast about, uh, Cicely Tyson. Um, And so one of the hopeful things about this quote that I'm about to share is how Cicely Tyson uh, being on TV was... uh, one of the first times that Viola felt seen and um, validated. So I'm going to get into that quote now. One evening while watching TV, a new world opened up before my very eyes. A woman who looked just like my mama came on television one night and something magical happened. Suddenly, I saw her. I saw her. It was Miss Cicely Tyson in the autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman. She had a long neck and was beautiful dark skin, glistening with sweat, high cheekbones, thick, full lips, and a clean, short afro. My heart stopped beating. The shame, pain, fear, confusion, all these negative feelings I had about my life and my situation were blasted through a brand new doorway. It was like a hand reached for mine, and I finally saw my way out. The beauty of that moment was that my sister saw an exit, too. I experienced the true power of artistry. At that moment, I found my calling. How Miss Tyson transformed from 18 to 110 years old was supernatural. I wanted to be supernatural. I wanted my life to mean something. And this was it. I finally found it. It wasn't long after I had my first performance, a skit, with my sisters in a contest at Jenks Park, sponsored by the Central Falls parks and recreation department. It was a big deal. The whole city was buzzing. All the white kids who went to Teresa Landry School of Dance for tap dance, acrobatic lessons, and so forth, some of whom very freely called us nigger, nigger, nigger all the time, were favored to win. But anybody in Central Falls could create a skit, and whoever won 
got a profile in the paper and a prize. My sisters and I decided we were going to win that damn contest. The skit ended with a standing ovation, but nostalgia is powerful. The memory of winning, the applause, the acceptance is my takeaway, but my lack of self-love and my complete inability to open up to anyone about my one driving fear. My father is going to beat my mom to death one day. Couldn't be voiced. The adoration is as powerful as that curtain was in The Wizard of Oz. It hid a lie that gave me temporary asylum. That was what winning was, an instant protection and smokescreen to hide the fact that I was simply scared all the time. I felt like an outsider all the time, end quote. So in that section, we see, as I said, you know, she's seeing somebody on TV who gives her hope that things can be different for her. Um, And she also goes into how when she's acting, it gave her a small respite from the pain and the turmoil of her real life. Um, So she was able to kind of switch that off while being in the moment of acting. Um, So moving forward, uh, the next uh, section of quotes that I'm going to share kind of follows that same pattern of how acting was uh, a, a sense of healing for Viola Davis. So the following is going to be a couple of quotes pieced together throughout the book. Quote, Ron gave me two huge gifts that changed my life. The first happened during our first day in acting class. He asked all 14 of us how many wanted to be actors. We all raised our hands. You know you have to work fucking hard every fucking day, he said. A fourth of the hands went down. But I thought, wow, that is awesome. Every day, he repeated. More hands down. You can go on an audition every frickin' day for six weeks and never, ever get a job. You know that, right? More hands down. My hand remained raised, as if reaching for the sky, and you're gonna get rejected time and time and time again, Ron continued. I was the only one now who had my hand up. He kept going at me. You're going to get an egg on your face. You're going to fail. Your family is not going to understand what you do, and neither will most people. I kept my hand up, staring at him. When you haven't had enough to eat, when your electricity and heat are cut off, you're not afraid when someone says life is going to be hard. The fear factor was minimized for me. I already knew fear. My dreams were bigger than the fear. He stared at me. Okay, let's get back to class. Later on, Viola says, quote, I became an actor because it's a healing wellspring. And also later on in the book, she says, quote, I was broken and my brokenness brought me here to acting, to New York, to wanting to heal and live and feel alive, end quote. So from a young age, she fell in love with acting upon seeing an example through the autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman. Um, And so then she entered her first contest and won. And then it was a content, like that was her thing moving forward. Um, So clearly acting is very therapeutic for her throughout her life as you read through the story. So um, I mentioned in the last episode, which kind of focused on trauma and mental health symptoms and mental health treatment, 
But obviously, Viola Davis is an advocate for going to therapy, so I just want to share a couple snippets here about that. Quote, I worked out every day, ate great food, and had found a therapist who lived right up the street. I loved her. Well, as much as you could love a person who pulled your insides out. She would also say, Viola, what if you didn't change all the parts of yourself that you're not happy with? What if you just stayed you? Could you be happy with that? Could you still love yourself? It almost became a moment like the one I had with a different therapist years later, who told me to allow my younger self to hug me. Hell, SAG was paying her $100 per hour to tell me that? It took me the longest time to answer that question verbally, and even longer to answer it internally. I still felt awkward. I was trying to fit in, I don't know where, just to feel right. I just wanted to feel like who I was was meant to be. I was still running from those boys. I was still staring into the hate-filled, disgusted eyes of my tormentors and feeling like they represented the overall consensus that I was worthless, end quote. And so that quote speaks for itself, but I just wanted to reiterate the part where she said, um, as much as you can love a person who pulled your insides out. Um, I love her candor when dealing with uh, topics of mental health or things that people would have a hard time talking about um, because, you know, I'm obviously an advocate for therapy because I'm a therapist, but also I see a therapist. In fact, shortly after I finish recording this episode, I have an appointment with my therapist. Um, But the part about getting your insides pulled out, um, that sometimes is the reality of therapy. You almost have to like unpack some things that you've been pushing down in order to begin the healing process. So um, sometimes therapy is one of those things that it feels like things are getting worse before they get better. Um, So I I appreciate her, her honesty with that, because it's not just you go to therapy and a magic wand is waved and you're cured. Sometimes it's really grueling hard work, but the end result is usually an improved quality of life. So the final quote that I want to share um, on this topic of a sense of hope, right? So we've kind of talked about, you know, the principal that was looking out for her at a young age, um, then later on being able to see someone on TV that looked like her, and then being able to use acting as an escape, and then therapy, right? So this last part is going to, it fits into the topic of hopeful because she talks about her uh, process of adopting her daughter, Genesis. Um, You heard in the last episode that um, Viola dealt with um, really bad like fibroids and fertility issues and stuff like that and ended up having a hysterectomy. So um, given that, she was unable to have children of her own, but um, she ended up going through the adoption process. So here we go. Quote, I started the adoption process because of Lorraine Toussaint, a fantastic actress I know. She told me she decided to adopt her child because she didn't want series regular to be written on her tombstone. Denzel always said, there's no U-Haul in the back of a hearse. I wanted my life to be about something more than work. The process of adopting Genesis was long. It lasted almost a year. 
seven social workers, classes, evaluations, home inspections. One social worker ran the water in our sink and stood there for 15 to 20 minutes with a hand under the faucet making sure the hot water didn't go past a certain temperature. We put a fence around our swimming pool, covers on all the fireplaces, child safety latches on the cabinets, preparing for baby in the house. There were no words to describe the paperwork, hundreds of pages in which you revisit how you were raised, what your home environment was like as a child, were you abused, what was the effect of the abuse, how do you feel about having children, how are you going to discipline. We sat for hours and talked to a social worker about all that. It's all something that every prospective parent should probably do. But when you are adopting, you have to explore whether you are fit to have a child in your life. I didn't care about it being hard in the same way I didn't care about acting being hard. Hard was relative to me. Growing up, food insecure, washing my clothes by hand in cold water the night before I had to go to school, hanging them up, and they were still wet the next morning. Wearing those wet clothes, even if I'd pissed the bed, everything had been hard for me. I had mastered hard. Now I wanted joy. That joy came from adopting a child, and joy was worth more than the sacrifice. I met her for the first time when she was about five months old. I had to do a lot of paperwork before I could even see her. As soon as she saw me, the smile on her face was like she was inviting me to be her mommy, had accepted me, end quote. So I want to leave it on that, that positive note. Um, this is the end of the four-part series on uh, Viola Davis's memoir, Finding Me. Um, but we are continuing on with the Summer Book Club series. So starting next week, I will begin reviewing uh, Billy Porter's memoir called Unprotected. So definitely be sure to tune in next week for the first episode of that. And I'm actually going to use the same outline for his memoir as I did for Viola Davis's. So the first episode will focus on environments. The second episode will focus on racism, um, homophobia, that sort of stuff. Third episode will focus on trauma and mental health. And the final uh, episode will be the hopeful episode where I share snippets of things that turned around and went well for um, the author. So thank you so much for listening to this series, and I will see you all back next week. Take care. If you enjoyed this episode, you can support this podcast by buying me a coffee. The link is in this episode's show notes. Thanks in advance. Anchor is everything you need to make a podcast, and best of all, it's free. They offer creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor also distributes your podcast, so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts, and many more. Did I mention that you can make money from your podcast no matter the size of your following? Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today.